lives. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the New Testament book of Colossians. There is a Bible provided for you in the seat underneath, and I would invite you to take that and turn to page 834. Page 834. And what we're going to do is we're going to read chapter 2, verse 6 of Colossians all the way to the end of the chapter. And um, so our, we're going to be here for just a bit, and then we're going to be able to share a meal together to keep that in mind um, uh, as we end. <laughs> yeah. That'll be the second best thing about today, huh? <laughs> it's a meal. Okay, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Let's hear the word of the Lord. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grow as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, Do not touch. These are destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Amen. God bless the reading of his word and may God please give us understanding of it today. So pray with me, please. Our God and Father, we ask that you would be pleased to bring much glory to yourself and to help each of us here now as we ask for the enabling of the Holy Spirit to 
make this text clear in order that we can understand it, that we can believe on the Christ who is proclaimed in it and live within its truth. And we would ask this, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. How are you righteous before God? It's a great question. And the question is not, how are you righteous? And the question is not, how are you righteous compared to other people? But the question is, how are you righteous before God? And it's probably one of the most important questions a person can ask and find an answer to in their life. I suspect it's a question which probably a whole lot of people have never really thought about asking. But I bet when asked, you get a whole lot of different answers to the question. It's been estimated that there are some 4,200 religions in the world. So, how are you righteous before God? How is it that right now, in this body of ours, mind, soul, spirit, which honestly, right, honestly, sometimes is kind of good and sometimes really bad, how are you, we, I, righteous before God? That question haunted Martin Luther before he came to Christ. It haunted him until God turned the lights on for Luther and he began to understand, listen carefully, that the righteousness that God was calling for was not a righteousness a man or a woman could produce. But this was a righteousness that God, by his grace, was making available to those who would receive it passively and not those who would try to achieve it actively. So they would receive it by faith. And by that faith, a person could be made, not become, made righteous before God. So how are we righteous before God? Here's an answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments and I don't keep them and I'm still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of His grace, imputes, credits me, disperses to me the perfect satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Christ. He grants this to me as if I've never had nor ever will commit any sin And I myself have accomplished this, all this obedience which Christ has provided for me at the cross. If only I accept this gift by faith. It's a doctrine of justification. It's very good if you were listening, right? In light of who we are and in light of what we do and what we fail to do, don't you want that to be true? Don't you want Christ to give to you to impute to you his very righteousness. And this would be the key to how you understand yourself always before God and before other people. Just as we are, right, with all our breakable parts right now before a holy God who, by the way, is a purity that we can't even conceive in our minds. 
And let's add to that this. What if someone or a group of someone's came to us and tried to twist that truth around and tried to say, well, you know what? Jesus is good. His death on the cross is fine. Justification, fantastic. But you know, if you're going to be super serious and super holy and super spiritual and have superpowers, you know, to, to combat evil and to remove your failures and live, you know, above the rest of everyone else, then you're going to have to add a few other things. A few other additions to what Christ has already provided in his suffering and death on the cross and resurrection. Now, is that true, that latter statement true? Because I can guarantee you there were people in Colossae and maybe there are people in Cohasset who believe that to be true. That there's something more that you and I need other than what Christ has provided By his suffering and death on the cross. So let's just do this. Let's spend the next few minutes. See what God's word says. As best we can. And find out how we are righteous. Before God. Now the Colossian church. Which was located in the southeastern portion of modern day Turkey. Was not a church that Paul himself founded. It was actually established as a result of Paul's gospel work in Ephesus. You see there was a gentleman named Epaphras, who heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, and in turn, he went to Colossae to preach the gospel. It's a wonderful biblical pattern you see all over the Bible. Someone becomes a Christian, they hear the gospel, they receive the gospel, and and as quick as a wink, they share the gospel with others. However, as soon as the church in Colossae is beginning to be established, you know, here come the holy rollers, right? People who were trying to add things to the one gospel Paul had been preaching. So, because of this, Epaphras goes back to Ephesus and says to Paul, help. And Paul does help in part by writing this letter, a letter written from, of all places, prison. Because Paul was in prison because he was preaching Jesus. Now, if you've got a worship folder in the very back, you'll see the first point. here. There's just three and they'll be brief. The first one will be the longest, so don't worry. The problem, okay, here was the problem. If your Bible's open, you're going to be able to see this. There were false teachers who were teaching false truth, false doctrine, excuse me, and they were trying to make headway into the church in three ways. First way, chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, the human mind, and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Okay, that's the first thing. One, they were putting forward a crossless, Christless religion. It was a kind of a how-to Christianity, a moralistic, which made it all up to you if you were going to be able to tap into God's power. So what they did was they said there were techniques you needed to perform And not a savior you needed to trust. That's the first problem. Second problem, chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival. Okay, that's the second thing. The false teacher said, listen, if you want power, power, wonder-working power, it's not only in the blood of the lamb, but it's going to be actually because you no longer eat lamb, right? No more meat, only veggies or food, which these false teachers were said it was okay to eat. Here was their line of thinking. Okay, so if you were on this special, we'll call it religious diet, then you could become closer to God. Because if you feel good, then you're going to be good. So you can tap into this 
other realm and become really good because of what you eat or don't eat. Third problem, chapter 2, verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Okay, so the third thing is two things. They're pretty contemporary. They had a man-made list of do's and don'ts and spiritual visions, which they said, if, if you do this list, discipline, or if you have these kind of religious experience, we'll call them visions, if you do that, then, then you're going to move up the ladder with God. But if you don't have these things and don't do these things, then you're going to become disqualified. And the Greek word for disqualified has the meaning of an umpire who decides against you. Right? So the false teachers would say, if you're not having these experiences and you're not doing these things on our list, then you're out. Right? You're disqualified. Right? So you know how it goes. You know, I've never had a vision. I've never heard a voice. I don't think Jesus has woke me up at two in the morning, you know, to do something. And so because of that, they would say to me, well, you know what? You're really not all that you could be and should be. So here's the problem. False teachers are trying to capture these young Christians with a line of religion that kept them looking at themselves and what they were doing or not doing, taking their eyes off Jesus Christ and what he's already done. Then they would judge these young Christians on what they were doing by way of diets and special dates and special disciplines and would say, you're disqualified because these certain types of things which we say need to happen in your religious experience are not happening. Add to that certain type of body neglecting activities, uh, disciplines, asceticism, which they said you've got to do if you're going to get closer to God. And Paul says, don't let, you cap, don't let them capture you, judge you, or disqualify you based on these things. So, so think of it like this. All a false teacher has to do is ask, are you dissatisfied with your Christian life? And most Christians of, of honest and tender conscience will, uh, will answer, yeah, of course I am. However, if they're not careful and they have a very loose hold of the gospel... They can be duped, right? Do you want more of Jesus? Colossians 2 verse 10 says, we already have his fullness. And then they'll say, don't you want to see his power in your life? Uh, Colossians 1 verse 11, all power is given to Christ and Christ is all authority and you have this Christ in you. So it's the trick of advertising, isn't it? Make the customer feel inadequate. Make the customer think that they are somehow in need. And if you're able to do that, then you got them. You got them. You can sell them your stuff. When my son, Jared, was a, just a little boy, we bought him a really, really cheap metal detector, right? The kid version. And the thing was so cheap that every time he turned it on, as soon as he would wave it across anything, the alarm went off. It was like, beep, 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 beep. So he'd wave it over the dog. Beep, 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 beep. He'd wave it over his lunch. Beep, 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 beep. He waved over his baby sister. Beep, 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 beep. And Jared was like, Dad, I think we're going to need to operate on Lindsay. I'm pretty sure she's got metal in her, maybe some coins. If she does have coins, can I have them, Dad, right? Okay, so why the story? Because like a cheap metal detector, always going off, that's one of the tricks of the trades of the false teacher, right? They just wave it over you. Beep, 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 beep. And they say, yeah. You're not what you should be. And you got to do something. However, the Bible says, no, no, no. 
You've got to believe on someone. However, the false teachers are like, well, the beeper went off and we can help you, but they don't, you know, well, they offer you snake oil, cheap substitutes, human philosophies that is crossless and Christless. They don't, Colossians 2 verse 10, do you see it there? They don't even think about that you have, Christian, day one, the fullness of Christ. So when the false teacher asked the question, how are you righteous before God? Some of their answers would be something like this. Colossians 2 verse 18b, angelic visions can help. Colossians 2 verse 16, a certain kind of diet, worship on certain dates, and you can have these certain disciplines, and they will give you superpowers, and you can become righteous, or maybe even more righteous before God. Paul's reply is, chapter 2 verse 17, those things are just shadows. They're obscurities. Uh, This is akin to someone asking me if I would like to kiss a picture of my wife, Or would I actually like to kiss my wife? Right? And I bet you know the answer to that one. So Paul was like, do you want phantom power? Or do you want God's power in Christ? Which, by the way, again, Colossians 2, 10, 11, and 12, the Christian already has. And you know, I was thinking this morning and actually a little bit yesterday, we're so used to in our Christian experience, people trying to pump us with all kinds of stuff to help us that we forget what we already have been given in Christ. So ask yourself the question, do you want a sugary high Christian existence, right? When you need to feel it, if you're feeling it with God, do you need that? Or do you want a nice warm meal and a really good beverage and a fine type of of dessert, of an existence in Christ with God. J.B. Phillips translates chapter 2 verse 20 of, of Colossians like this. I know that these regulations look wise with their self-inspired efforts at worship, their policy of self-humbling, and their studied neglect of the body, but in actual practice, they do honor but not to God, but to a person's own pride. You see, there it is. There it is. Paul would say, if all we have is Christ, then our only boast can be Christ. But if we seek something else, and we run for something else, or run to someone else, then Paul has an answer there. It's your pride. Either you do not believe what Christ has accomplished for you. Or you do not believe that every Christian is equal at the foot of the cross. And you just want to be a little bit above everybody else. It's pride. John Calvin says it like this. Pride is at the bottom of a great many evil practices. Which have a great show and appearance of humility. Some people love to make a parade of exceptional piety. Others are prone to be taken in by the show. It is of importance to consider here how prone, no, how forward the mind of man is to artificial modes of salvation. The zeal of humanity for superstition or legalism is surprisingly mad. That's the problem. Quickly now, the solution. Well, if you were paying attention to the reading, it's Jesus, isn't it? And it's the cross. 
Peggy Noonan writes op-ed pieces for the Wall Street Journal. And last week I was reading, she wrote um, an article commending the qualifications of a certain person. And listen to what she says. Because they understand their craft so well, they are able to proceed with simplicity. You don't have to get fancy when you know what you're doing. Right? You don't have to get fancy when you know what you're doing. Paul knows what he's doing. So he just sets forth the truth plainly. If your Bible is open, chapter 2, verse 13. You were dead, right? Lifeless, helpless in your sin before a holy God. But, Christian, this holy God made you alive. Okay, how? Well, there it is. He forgave us all our sins. Okay, through what means? Well, your Bible's open. Through canceling Every lawful right, every moral code which affirmed our guilt and which outside of Christ would continue to affirm our guilt. Christ took it away. Past, present, future guilt. But not with nothing, right? God didn't say like Alakazam, your sins are forgiven. Christ took it away, but not with nothing, but with everything. Last phrase, verse 14, by nailing it to the cross. In other words, Christ had to die to give you his righteousness. So when the question was answered, how are we righteous before a holy God? We essentially had of one phrase, by faith in Jesus Christ always and forever. And that calls to mind Horatio Spafford hymn. You remember the classic hymn, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not the part but the whole has been nailed to the cross. You see, he got that right out of Colossians 2.14. My sin's been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So having done that, verse 15, Christ disarmed. I mean, he took away the means. He took away the reason that the powers of hell and the people of this world could condemn and accuse us. And he put them to open shame. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means something like this. To all but the eyes of faith, the weakest, most pitiful means on a human level that could be put forward to to have sin forgiven and to make us righteous before God was the death of a naked, crucified, 30-something-year-old young man named the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, Paul would point to the cross and he would say, ladies and gentlemen, there is your righteousness. There is your righteousness. False teacher, they would have, they would put forward techniques and little lists and little experiences that you needed to have or little disciplines that you were needed to do. And they would say, yeah, that's nice, Christ. But, you know, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Someone had to die in order that we could be righteous Always before a holy God, the Lord Jesus Christ. False teachers, again, put forward a technique. Paul puts forward a person for our righteousness. So the powers of hell are exposed. The Christian sin is atoned for because Jesus took away their only weapon, the indictment of our sin, and he did it by nailing it to the cross. Loved ones, our union with Christ, given to us as the gospel, 
is as if Jesus Christ swept us off our feet, takes us in his arms. Nothing can remove us. And he wraps his righteousness around us. That is our confidence. It is for everyone who comes to Christ in childlike faith and repentance. So that there isn't a day, not one day, when the Christian does not stand righteous before a holy God. There's no gaps to fill with Jesus. And you do not miss out on anything with Jesus. And loved ones, if you do not understand that, may God give you the grace to frame your life, my life, in that truth. Because if all we have is Christ, then Paul would say, all we need is Christ. Final point, super short. What's our reaction to that? Well, it's not too complicated. What what do you do with all that goodness? I mean, if those things be true, what do you do? How do you respond to such goodness? Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the explosive power of a new affection, if you would. This is Nothing in Christianity is unattached to Jesus Christ in his finished work on the cross. So there can be nothing under the label of Christianity, whether it be a book or a lesson or a sermon or whatever, that's not attached to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because again, Paul would say, Christian, all you have is Christ. And he would say, because... Of everything that Jesus accomplished at the cross. All you need is Christ. So let me just end like this. In Christ you can live an upright life. Because you're no longer a slave to sin. But we won't always do right. And some days will be terrible. Still. Only because of Jesus. We will be forgiven because we are clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. How are you righteous before God? Thanks for your attention. Let's bow together as the men come forward. We're going to be taking an offering for those of you who would like to give to the work of Teen Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge. And if the ushers could come forward too. I'm going to say a brief prayer and then we're going to listen to these gentlemen sing.